0: Welcome to Extension Out Loud, a podcast from Cornell Cooperative Extension. I'm Paul Treadwell.
1: And I'm Katie Balden.
0: Who are we talking to this time, Katie?
1: Today we're talking to Sharon Backman, Laura Bailey, and Carrie Brown-Lima.
0: And we're talking about invasive species, specifically the focus on swallow wart.
1: And there's a collaborative project between Carrie, who's the director of the New York Invasive Species Research Institute, and some extension educators, including Sharon and Laura.
0: We cover um, a fair amount of territory in this conversation around invasives, and then we focus in on the new project that's being kicked off this summer, as a matter of fact.
1: Yeah, biocontrol measures to control the spread of invasive swallow work.
2: My name is Carrie Brown Lima, and I'm the director of the New York Invasive Species Research Institute, which is based in the Department of Natural Resources uh, here on the Ithaca campus of Cornell. And the role of the research institute is to serve as a link between invasive species research and invasive species practice, the people on the ground that need the information to make decisions on how to handle uh, invasive species.
3: I am Laura Bailey and I am a Natural Resources Educator for Cornell Cooperative Extension of Yates County and I'm also one of the Regional Directors um, of the Master Forest Owner Program for the Northwest Region.
4: And I'm Sharon Bachman. I work with Cornell Cooperative Extension in Erie County as an Ag and Natural Resources Educator and also with our Consumer Horticulture
0: Program. So we're here today, we're going to spend a little time talking about an invasive species and specifically some of the current work that's happening uh, with Cornell and Cornell Cooperative Extension offices across New York State. So why don't we start out and just sort of establish what does it mean when we talk about invasives as far as plants are concerned?
2: An invasive species is a species that comes from another location, another country, another continent. And when it arrives in the new location, its populations start growing unchecked and it causes some sort of damage either to the environment, to the economy, or to human health. And that's a really important part of the definition of an invasive species because we have many non-native species that we purposefully introduce here for crops or domestic livestock that also are not native but they aren't causing the damage that invasive species cause.
0: Can you help me understand, what's the difference between a weed and an invasive species? I mean, I have weeds all over the place. Are my weeds invasives?
2: Some of your weeds are invasives, and there are weeds that are also native species that are just better at growing and taking over and dominating areas. So I believe our common dandelions in our lawn are not invasive species, but are weeds.
4: I I would agree with that. A weed is a plant out of place, right? They do cause economic harm, but many of our weeds are from around here. But um, many of our invasive species cross over into that weed category. I can think of Japanese knotweed growing in the city of Buffalo near some of our gardens.
0: To me, it seems like an invasive is much more aggressive than a weed would be. Or do we have really aggressive weeds and we just live with them?
2: We do have aggressive weeds. um, And like Sharon said, they are Usually out of place, where maybe they're in our garden where we don't want them, do you have we call them weedy plant species, species that grow in large quantities and can kind of dominate an area, but that are native um, so but for the most part, a lot of the plant species that have this capacity to completely grow out of control and take over are species that come from other places and they have no native enemies that feed on them that can then keep their populations in check.
3: And there are some overarching principles that help determine what species are invasive and what species aren't. And when it comes to invasive species, they cause either environmental harm, economic harm, or pose harm to human health.
1: And those harms, I'm guessing, are what Require uh, management. So the difference between like a weed that might be pretty, like a dandelion or something, and an invasive species is that it requires some kind of management. Is
3: that right? It kind of it takes over. It has that ability to outcompete, um, you know, weeds and and other uh, native species. In the ecosystem and then also at another level if it is dominating those areas and posing risk to human health then that's something that
2: we definitely need to manage and i just wanted to Mm -hmm. add to that we have different reasons for managing invasive plant species sometimes we manage them because they're threatening our crops sometimes we're protecting native biodiversity so we want those uh, native plant species present that are then gonna support native pollinators. And so sometimes we wanna manage invasive aquatic plants just because they're making recreation unpleasurable. Say they're clogging up our boats or wrapping around our legs while we're swimming. And so we have different reasons for managing invasive species. And in this case, we're talking about plants. And so the way we decide whether we're going to manage them is if we're going to be able to meet some of those objectives that we have for management.
0: What are the different ways or the different tools that we have to manage invasive plants in New York State?
2: We have three main ways that we try to manage invasive plant species. The first one is just physical removal. So we're either pulling them or mowing them. The second option is using some sort of a chemical treatment, an herbicide that can be specific as possible to that species. And then the third option we have can be a longer term, more sustainable solution, but also requires a lot more initial research and investment is using biological control. Biological control in its classic form is where we go to wherever this invasive species came from, their home range, where they're usually not problematic. And we try to find the species that eat that species there and that are actually the ones that keep it in check. And then we spend years researching it, and we bring it over after it's been approved that we'll eat nothing but the one target species that we're hoping to control and introduce that as a way to keep the populations at lower numbers.
1: We're on here mainly today to talk about the swallow wart project, but I'm wondering if before we start diving into that specific project, if you could share some of the invasive plants that New Yorkers might see regularly or that might be more common?
3: I think one that you know most people are pretty familiar with and can find just about anywhere they look would be garlic mustard.
0: Garlic mustard it sounds like it should be good to eat is it not?
3: Well, it, it is edible. <laughs> there, there are some people that call themselves invasivores and, uh, you know, work on a diet of eating invasive species. And I will admit, my kids and I did make dinner one night. We had a uh, tortellini with vodka sauce, and we garnished it with garlic mustard.
0: It's problematic in, in your county. It is.
3: Yep. It's, you know, like all invasives, you know, really dominates an area in forests just takes over the forest floor and then that ends up interfering with regeneration of tree seedlings and any other, you know, like forest plants.
0: Sharon, what do you guys face out there in Erie County?
4: One that's kind of timely for this point in the year is a wild parsnip. It's related to giant hogweed and you're going to be seeing it along your road ditches. It's a great one to have folks be aware of and know that they need to avoid it especially on hot days like we've been experiencing not get that photophytodermatitis reaction on their skin with the burns and you don't want to go and munch on some wild parsnip even though that
3: one sounds edible too so <laughs> always you know something when you're out there when people are out there learning how to identify invasive species you know it's really important to keep those connections with the people that have taught you about them or if you're uncertain you know, reach out to somebody to verify confirmation because there are a lot of lookalikes. Sometimes they can be native lookalikes that we want to make sure that we don't remove. And other mm-hmm. times, you know, like wild parsnip or giant hogweed, they can be you know harmful to human health. Right now, we're
1: in the middle of a drought. It's really hot, kind of experiencing some of the impacts of climate change. And I'm wondering if that has an impact on invasive plant species.
2: What we have been seeing species that previously weren't invasive or problematic in New York are now able to survive and thrive in places in New York where they previously weren't. And so mm-hmm. we're also seeing species that were here but didn't have an explosive population start to spread more as well. And so those are the kinds of things that we can we're going to see with climate change. We also have seen where the native species might be weakened or less healthy because of drought, and maybe the invasive species would be able to take hold because it just was a little more resilient or a little more adaptable to that climate. And so we do see invasives tending to do better, relatively speaking, than native species.
0: The current focal point of your research, Carrie, and Sharon and Laura both participating in this, is Something called swallow Can you give us a little history of what swallow wort is, where it came from, how it ended up here, and why it's a problem?
2: Swallow wort is native to
3: Europe and Asia. They believe that it was originally brought to North America for horticultural purposes as an ornamental.
0: And did I read somewhere that happened like 1880 or something like that?
3: I don't remember the exact date, but I think it was mid to late 1800s.
0: Somebody was thinking, well, this would be nice in my ornamental garden.
3: Yep. Yeah, it is a very very pretty plant, so yeah.
2: We are the culprit for a lot of the species that come here. Some do come in ballast water or in packing material, and then some are brought over purposefully with the idea to plant in gardens, but sometimes they weren't problematic in the beginning and then because of disturbance or climate change or they were able to spread further to more favorable areas then they were able to really take hold and become problematic that's why we see this lag period sometimes between introduction and the problematic stages that we were experiencing right now
1: if it was brought over intentionally because it's kind of pretty could you describe what it looks like
3: There's actually two species of swallow wort that are considered invasive in New York State. One is black swallow wort and the other is pale swallow wort. And both of them are twining vine. The pale swallow wort has a lighter pink to maroon flower. And then the black swallow wort has a dark maroon to an almost black flower. And they're tiny little flowers with about five petals
0: each. So if I'm out for a wander, where am I likely to encounter a swallowwort?
3: So black and pale swallowworts both can establish in a wide range of soils, different light conditions, moisture conditions. So they can be found in a variety of different habitats, like roadsides and agricultural fields. Typically, they prefer full sun, but they can also thrive in some semi-shaded areas. So black swallowwort is the one that you might often find invading woodlands. And pale swallowwort can also be found in some of those more densely um, shaded sites. One of the issues with swallowwort is that when a monarch butterfly is having a hard time finding milkweed because it has been outcompeted by swallowwort, then they think that it's an alternative that they can lay their eggs on, but unfortunately doesn't provide the same benefits to them that milkweed does. So their larvae won't survive.
1: We talked about some of the problems of, that swallowwort is causing in ecosystems, but I'm not sure that we touched on all of them. So are there other problems associated with swallowwort?
3: We also mentioned, you know, in like woodland areas, they interfere with forest regeneration, but that it's also problematic in agricultural areas because swallowwort will often grow along field edges. And when it works its way into the field and then, say, gets chopped up along with the hay, it can sicken livestock.
2: Mm -hmm. It also just becomes almost impassable. Its other name is dog strangling vine. And so Mm -hmm. it it gets these long viney characteristics that wrap around your ankles when you're trying to walk through it. So movement among an area actually becomes difficult once it forms a, a thick stand.
0: So can I just flip back for a quick second to ask about the approval process? Who approves a biocontrol as being suitable for release?
2: The biocontrol, first the research is done, um, mm-hmm. and there are certain protocols that researchers use, certain tests they need to conduct, and then they write that up and summarize their result. So then that's the, in the researcher's realm. Once that research is conducted, they submit a petition to USDA APHIS, and it's evaluated by an expert um, technical advisory group that then determines whether the research accurately depicts the safety of this species and identifies any problems. It doesn't just end there. And then there's other approvals that are needed. The Fish and Wildlife Service also needs to approve that it's not threatening any species that they're concerned about. And then eventually it's opened up for the public as well to comment on. And then after it goes through all these steps, it can eventually be recommended for approval.
0: I don't think at this point yet we've mentioned what the actual biocontrol is, have we?
2: We have not (laughs)
0: <laughs> so it, it might be kind of good to talk about what we're actually talking about here. Sharon and Laura, when you get ready to release this biocontrol, what are you going to be releasing? So we're is- going
4: to be releasing a moth, it's Hypena opulenta is the Latin name. And as Carrie said, it feeds specifically on the swallowwort species.
0: And that's an import from the Ukraine? Yes. So that's gone through the whole process with researchers and folks like Kerry. And now for you two, on your end, what's the process like? Did Carrie come to you and say, hey, we want to try this out, and you guys look like you'd be good guinea pigs? Or did you go to Carrie and say, hey, we have this problem, help us out?
3: How cooperative extension is kind of organized across the state is pretty specific to each region or each county's needs. So there's a cooperative extension office in each county across New York State, and the educators that they have in that department is specific to the area's needs. So Sharon and I, in our respective counties, there's need for a natural resources educator. So Carrie reached out to the natural resource educators in the state where there is known to be infestations of swallowwort. And that's how the partnership formed.
1: Tell us about the release. What happens and what's your involvement in the process?
3: So we haven't officially released any of the moths yet. The moths are still being reared in the lab. But we did recently just set up some sites in preparation for the moths. So the site that I am working with is in Ontario County, which is one of the counties adjacent to Yates County and the site that I'm going to be working at is Ganondagan State Historic Site, which is located in Victor, New York, and it's a national historic landmark. And it's actually the only New York State historic site that's dedicated to a Native American theme and the only Seneca town that's interpreted in the United States. So the whole site is 569 acres, and some of it has become overtaken by pale swallow wart. So in some of the areas, uh, the New York State Office of Parks, Recreation and Historic Preservation has been successful at managing the infestation of swallowwort with some of the control methods that Carrie mentioned earlier, such as prescribed burns and chemical treatments. But there is approximately four acres where some of these other methods of control are really not ideal and they haven't been able to manage the swallowwort in that acreage. So this is an ideal site to see if something like biocontrol can be used to manage the infestation.
0: What about you, Sharon? Where are you letting your critters loose?
4: We have two sites here in Erie County. One also is a partnership with state parks. It's along a beach on Lake Erie. So I put that cage up probably about two weeks ago with Carrie's research assistant, and we had one of our big lake storms. So I'm going back out this week to make sure all is good. A couple weeks, we're going to have the moths to release, but um, we're not quite sure when. And then my second site is more of a field, and it's called an oak opening. It's a site that one of our towns is seeking to preserve. It connects some open areas, so they're hoping to have some walking trails through there. But right now, the dog-strangling vine characteristic <laughs> of the is showing through, and it's a hard area to get through. So we're going to put that cage up later this week. And what kinds of data are you collecting we set up 10 monitoring quadrants. So the moths will be in the cage for a period of time. And then once the plants inside the cage have been eaten by the moths, we're going to release them into the surrounding area. And then we're going to go back to those 10 quadrants that we set up and monitor density of swallowwort in there and any feeding by the insects. So when we set up those plots outside
3: of the release cage, what we do in those plots is we go through and we count all of the stems of swallowwort so that we get an idea of the density. We're counting stem density. So you're count, you're literally like pulling all of the stems, counting them one by one. And then you're looking underneath this dense infestation to kind of see the underneath all of those flowering vines, like the seedlings that are coming up underneath it too. So really kind of getting an idea of the density. And then once you gather all that information about the density in your plots, you can extrapolate that to the acreage that you're working with.
0: Sounds really exciting to do STEM counts, boy.
3: It actually was. <laughs> it was fun.
0: Okay. <laughs> but that's, yeah. and that's but why I went to
3: forestry school, so, you know, being in the field and doing, like... <laughs> that's that's why faith. you
0: do the job you do and I do the job I do. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So is the general public aware of what's happening, and is there any public reaction to what is happening in these test sites
3: So that's going to kind of be a big part of uh, mine and Sharon's responsibilities in this project is to really educate the public on what swallowwort is, what biocontrol is, and why we're doing what we're doing. So we did a a survey last year to gauge people's perceptions of biocontrol to help guide our educational material development.
0: Can uh, swallowwort be mistaken for any other type of plant? Is it similar enough? Easily confused with other plants, or is it fairly distinctive?
3: I would say probably one of its closest lookalikes is going to be milkweed. But you know, if somebody's taking a good look at some of the identifying features, they'll be able to discern the difference. Where milkweed is stock, where swallowwort is a twining vine.
4: I think something that I even learned is what the really small plants look like. And for the public seeking to identify, the flowers are only on for a short time. So really knowing what the leaves look like, it might be the key characteristic. And then the seed pods are also similar
3: to that of milkweed, but they're much smaller, much narrower. But when they do break open, they've got that similar seed um, with that little tuft of hair on it so that they can be easily wind dispersed.
0: We're almost out of time here, but I just did, I had one thought I wanted to follow up on, and this might be a problematic question, but you mentioned, one of you mentioned um, monarch butterflies going to swallow wart if there's no milkweed nearby. Is there a danger, and maybe Carrie, if she's reconnected again, could, could weigh in on this, is there a danger of the moths that are going to be released as the biocontrols once they've had their fun with swallow wart? jumping over to like milkweed.
5: That's probably one, that's one of the species that was most um, studied, I would say, as a concern because of the closer relationship between swallowwort and, and milkweed. And there was no evidence at all that that would happen. And also because so many insects are so highly host specific, meaning that they really can't survive on anything else. So in the same way, that the monarch butterflies can't eat the swallowwort, the Hypenopetulenta moths can't survive on the on the milkweed, and so that's what makes for a, a biocontrol that we would consider safe. Um, is when we we there's really a, such a low probability that that species would ever be able to survive on anything else.
1: You were mentioning how eradication isn't the goal of biocontrol. So could you explain that thought a little bit more?
5: A lot of times when we're using conventional control methods, and that's when we're talking about you know, herbicides or removal, we actually need to get rid of all of the species in an area so that its seeds don't build back up and its roots and it spreads again. With biocontrol, we call it a sustainable solution because the insects are going to feed on it. And as if there's a lot of it available, in, they were, their populations would grow, be able to grow. And then as it's reduced, their populations will be reduced. However, we don't really need to get rid of every single swallowwort plant to bring an ecosystem back into balance. If we had a big field that was full of many different plant species, native grasses, milkweeds, other flowering species, a few swallowwort plants in there aren't going to be a problem. The problem is when its population takes over. And so biocontrol would never actually like eliminate every single plant, but that would be okay because even if we were thinking about an aquatic plant species, if there were one or two plants in the, the water, It's not going to be clogging up our boat and making it miserable to swim. It's when the very high, dense population is present where we really see the negative impacts.
0: So we're just about out of time. Is there anything that we should have asked you that we didn't?
5: I don't know if this was mentioned. We're cautiously optimistic about this biocontrol. We don't want to say this is going to be a silver bullet. And now that we're releasing this, all the swallowwort is going to be reduced and we're all going to live happily ever after. Often we have the need to introduce more than one biocontrol species. Some of the most successful biocontrol programs involved not only, say, for example, the Hypena opulenta, the moth that we're releasing to control swallower, it feeds on the leaves. But the root systems of swallower are so extensive. And so we're currently researching, I say we, I'm talking about the greater research community, are looking at other species that might feed on the roots because that would help give it the one-two punch that would actually take the population down. So we kind of see this as a first step. And so we don't want people to be disappointed or have too high of expectations that this is going to be the like I said the silver bullet and so that would be just a final word that this is a step one step in the direction of a longer term and um, wider control program
0: so if people want to know more about the project as it's unfolding where should they go what's the best place to find info
5: Well, we're currently working closely with CCE to produce outreach materials so we can give more information on Swallower, on its control. We have some information on our website, www.nyisri.org. And I know that the CCE websites also will have some information on them. But we can also be contacted directly if, if anyone was interested in in becoming engaged in the program down the road or we're just wanting more information and to have some questions answered. So Laura, Sharon, or myself would be happy to address this.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode. Extension Out Loud was produced and edited by Paul Treadwell with help from Katie Belden and R.J. Anderson.
1: For more about this episode and other episodes, visit extensionoutloud.com. There you'll also find a listener survey, a mailing list sign up. Eh, uh, I'm screwed up.
0: That's okay. Start again. Okay. No, my part's fine. I, I did perfectly.
1: Yeah, I'm just pausing. <laughs> For more about this episode, including show notes, a listener survey, Uh, Sign up for our mailing list and more. Visit extensionoutloud.com. And be sure to subscribe to Extension Out Loud on your favorite podcast directory. (laughs) Be sure to subscribe to Extension Out Loud on your favorite podcast directory.